Hey there, listeners. If you would, please drop us a five-star rating in whichever platform you're consuming this on. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, a Google something, anything. Five stars will do. We'd greatly appreciate it. Thank you very much. So this is Coffee and Consoles, I think. It's the official name. The official name of our new podcast. My name is John. And I'm Kevin. And we're going to talk to you about Led Zeppelin's only top ten hit single. Well, before... If it's hard to believe. Before we get into that... No, what, I want John? to jump right into it. <laughs> uh, let's uh, let's uh, explain to our, our fine viewer, I, I suspect we'll have one at least... Uh, what what the premise of, of this podcast will be. Yes, what is it? Well, we talk coffee, recording consoles, both, or none. Sometimes none. Sometimes none. Sometimes many other things, many other... Maybe musically. like the coffee is, is a symbol for all the random tangents we will inevitably get into. Perhaps just, just you like just put random stuff in coffee, right? You got cream, you got sugar. Yes, I don't sometimes put... honey, sometimes sometimes stronger uh, other liquids that. Yeah, I don't know enjoy. how many randomly different things I'm going to put in my coffee. There's at least four or five, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Blood, at least four or five. You know, water. I mean, if you're doing a ritual, maybe. <laughs> well, I mean, we're talking about Led Zeppelin today. Yeah, so. you know, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> but the basic idea is we're gonna. Pick a song, a song we like. Could be a, a famous song, maybe not a famous song, mm-hmm. most likely a famous song. We are going to talk about it from a perspective of a very talented guitar player and Mr. Mr. John here. Thank you, sir. And I will speak about it from my experience as an audio engineer here in Nashville. A very talented one as well. well. We do our best. We do. And we will probably have some guitar playing along the way we'll have some uh some shenanigans along the way it's not too strict <laughs> we're uh, we're just we're just going to talk about about uh, the songs we like and, and why we like them yeah yeah we'll talk about tunes maybe sometimes a whole album maybe a concept or a means of recording maybe a concert maybe maybe we'll do a concert maybe do a live show perhaps someday we have to get a couple podcasts in first, though. Got to do a couple. We plan on, I think the spacing between episodes will be about one episode every two weeks. Two yes. episodes a month. 24 yes. a year. Good math. Right oh, yeah. That's we just decided that literally 10 seconds ago. 10 seconds ago. That, yes. that math was on the fly, folks. Ooh. That's why I'm not a musician. I, I can count past four. Ah, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> so what what song are we are we uh we're coming out with them today so we're going to give you every inch of whole lot of love and that's mm. my one lyrical joke for today i promise mm. we'll see zeppelin's whole lot of love as i was just about to say if i'm not mistaken it was their only top 10 hit single which is kind of one hard top 10 hit yeah hard to imagine when you think of like Ask any Joe on the street, like, name your top five rock bands of all time. I'd imagine most people, at least a good percentage of them, would have the Zep in their top five. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I and would they only venture to say maybe even top three. Uh, many of them, yeah, within the top two or three. So you'd have your Stones, ACDC, probably Zep. If one was going to consider the Beatles a rock band, which... I would argue yes. So they would obviously be up there too. So their only top ten hit single off their second album, Led Zeppelin Two, the f- creatively named second album. Yes, I love that. Yeah. So it's their first track off of that album, and it starts off with that classic riff at this point, which you probably already just heard. <laughs> So we're going to get into this song 
from the recording perspective, from the music perspective, maybe some historical significance in the influences and perhaps the controversies around it, like many Zeppelin songs, especially from today's modern perspective on things, songwriting credits and what have you. So let's start off with what came before, because Roy's a a summation of what came before us, you know, that sure. our influences, how we grew up, the uh, the nurture side of things, you could say. So if we go back to the early 60s first, Willie Dixon, a big name within a blues music, historical figure in blues, credited for many classic blues songs, had a song called You Need Love. I love that. It's like, you need love. You need it. Yes, you need it. Maybe. Not asking if you'd like some. <laughs> Maybe not politically correct in today's age. Perhaps. <laughs> like a lot of blues lyrics back in the day. Well, that's true. And so it was recorded by Muddy Waters, the great Muddy Waters in 63. Is that and, his real name? You know, it's not, and I can't remember what his, uh, I believe Waters is his uh official surname i don't think his mother named him muddy mckinley there you go morganfield the power of google yes with a name like mckinley morganfield waters i maybe understand yeah yeah his name was muddy no kidding yeah he chose correctly with a his stage name similar to like a robert zimmerman you know (laughs) robert zimmerman yeah bob dylan oh really yeah see i didn't know that there you go the more you know you never can trust a man with two first names, though, as a side, That's true. sidebar. Yeah. Oh, definitely. So we got Muddy Waters version in 63. I would definitely encourage our listeners to check it out. Really cool version. Um, kind of a classic, like, shuffle blues that doesn't follow your tradi- traditional 12-bar blues form. And then a few years after that, a... Uh, British rock blues band called The Small Faces in 1966 recorded a version of that, You Need Love. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, I think they titled it You Need Lovin'. A little extra. Two more letters thrown in there. So then, in 1969, the summer of love, or the year of the summer of love, that is, 50 years ago, this fall, Zepp releases a whole lot of love. Their... At that time, they didn't think of it as, but kind of their take on this Willie Dixon tune. Whole lot of love. And we'll get into some of the similarities between the two, both lyrically and musically too, because there's some musical ones, even though it's not a note for note, you know, rehash of that tune. So 1969, Zeppelin, they recorded it earlier that year, if I'm not mistaken. You're telling me, uh, Kevin, how they were like when they're on tour, they started to like they kind of record on, on the road. Indeed, for the second album, they carried a, a steam trunk full of master tapes with them from city to city, to studio to studio. That could not be light. It it definitely was probably not the best way to ensure yeah. the quality. Probably over the the fifty pound <laughs> limit. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was for sure very heavy. Um, you know, on an off day, they would get into a studio and they would continue to work on the album. And doing an album back then, a lot of times you would be writing the album as you recorded it. It's not like today where you have it written and then you go to just record. Oh, yeah, create. so much so, yeah. But, yeah, but yes, the, they did do that. The financial budgets back in the day to just put people in a studio, just see what came out, like to be yep. as creative as they could or sometimes they'd just be stoned out of their minds and there, nothing there, were, there were destination studios you know this yeah. is maybe a little later towards the 70s and 80s budgets were so big people decided we're just gonna go build a studio in the bahamas and then they would fly a band out to spend three months there crazy crazy to think about today yeah i could live that way I, yeah that'd yeah. be great i'd work I'd, I'd work at you know what i'd half my day rate to work at the bahamas studio <laughs> i would request at least two days off a week Sure, yeah. So, a typical 9 to 5. Definitely. That classic. Got to enjoy that sun. Oh, yeah. This uh, Zeppelin two, some of it recorded on the road, probably, and also in London, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. So let's get into some of the lyrical similarities with it. And there's a story that goes with this song 
And I believe there's even an interview with um, one of the band members from Small Faces. Because they knew, like, Zeppelin back then, the mid to late 60s. And they even noticed, like, once A Whole Lot of Love came out, like, this is kind of similar to our version of the, you know, the Willie Dixon tune. Um, But they didn't, it's so funny. It's like they didn't really care to a certain point. You know, you almost probably weren't making that much money. Yeah, probably partly. And uh, from the Zeppelin side of things too, like Robert Plant, they didn't really think of it anyway. Uh, Robert Plant was quoted as saying once, and I'm paraphrasing that, you know, Jimmy Page came up with that opening riff, you know, that open E power chord riff. And Plant just started kind of singing over it. And what came out, came out. And whether he was intentionally... Uh, referencing the Willie Dixon tune, You Need Love, or the Small Faces version of that. Um, I think it's pretty plain to see that somewhat consciously he was referencing it, because we'll get into some of the similar lyrical lines going on. But they, back then, they kind of figured that was kind of just part of writing a song, you know, especially like if you look at a lot of the famous bands by that point, their first couple albums were just basically cover albums, you know, the Stones, Beatles, even on, you know, a couple years before this in like 67, when Jimi Hendrix released Are You Experienced, he's, you know, a lot of his songs on there were just covers, especially like Hey Joe, which I might get into uh, a little later on as well. So back then that was kind of the thing. You just kind of did other people's songs because, you know, a lot of these bands, they were just cover bands back in the day playing their, you know, 10 p.m. to whenever the bar closed gigs, you know, every single night of the week. And so you had to have material to fill up that night. So it wasn't uncommon to like have, especially in the 60s, you had a lot of British rockers influenced by the uh, African-American blues. Um, And so they'd cover all those blues tunes. They loved it. So let's get into... I will just start from the beginning. We'll kind of go through the song minute by minute, perhaps. Minute by minute. Yeah. So we heard that opening riff again. Kind of classic riff. (laughs) Extra noise. (laughs) So a cool thing about this riff, and I didn't even realize this until I came across that documentary, um, it might get loud, if I'm not mistaken. That's what it's uh, called. Yeah, the one yeah. with uh, Jack White and Jack The White. Edge. Yes, in right. The Edge and, uh, of course, Jimmy Page. Jimmy Page, yeah. And I th- they're, like, in the studio, and he plays for them a whole lot of love. And he's showing them that he likes to bend that one note on the fifth string. That note. He likes to bend it while catching that open fourth string, and you get this nice little grind. I'm doing it very slowly here. But. So that's that main riff, you know, that little subtle detail put in there that, you know, if you were to look up tap for this song, I doubt it would kind of have that included in there. And But the riff itself, even, even if you take out that little... Uh, micro bin, micro tonal bin right there. Like, it's a pretty easy riff. You know, the song itself is, form-wise, is a pretty simple song. There's not a whole lot of chords. Might be a whole lot of love, but not a whole lot of chords in there. Um, so it's a good one, you know, for especially young players to kind of pick up and be able to, you know, bash away on jam the guitar once on. you jam out on it. You just need two fingers, you know, Index and ring finger will get you through a lot of things on the guitar. And that's really all you need for those that opening riff. And then the open E power chord in that based on the seventh fret or seventh position as guitar players will say. So you got that pretty simple riff bit, man. If it doesn't rock, especially once the drums and bass come in, I mean this song rocks your ass off. I oh, mean that's yeah. partly why it's probably, you know it reached into the top 10, you know, it's one of the most memorable Zeppelin tunes. It just goes. It goes. Um, And then it goes, but not for long until it jumps into this 
spacey, where are they going? <laughs> it's going, and like you wonder, where are they going? The spacey section, like right after that second chorus, you know, with the background vocals, whole lot of love, kind of a classic, like hooky, almost like a doo y thing, like whole lot of love, you know, like whole lot of love. This spacey, like percussion-laden section with sounds, there's a theremin going on, which we can talk about a theremin, but... It goes on for like at least a minute. And it's crazy when you think about like back in 69, like a radio friendly, you know, quote unquote rock song, not even at the two minute mark. And it just goes into this spacey, trancey sort of thing for a while with Plant doing these cool kind of like almost moanful, uh, you could probably figure somewhat uh, sexualized, mm. you know, like groans and ahs and ohs going on while John Bottoms doing his drum thing with the hi-hat with I think the distinctive thing with this song is even though it's kind of simple there's very distinctive sounds going on with that opening riff once the drums come in there's even some percussion going on with the shaker but then you hear that hi-hat it's like you're right there like with your ear right next to that hi-hat yeah. at least it sounds like it to me they probably had less than five mics on the on the entire drum set. It's very roomy, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They probably did what's called a, a Glenn Johns uh, style of miking, named after the engineer who invented it. I was gonna say Glenn who? Glenn Johns. It's basically a technique that if you only can use you know three or four mics, doing a Glenn Johns stereo technique and then a kick mic is usually a pretty good way to to go. Mm-hmm. And then they probably had a room mic, or maybe they didn't. Maybe it's just simply the mics from the amps and, and whatnot catching catching all the yeah, ambient perhaps too sound. It's very like you you can distinctively like hear the hi hat like reopening up. Like you hear the the snap of the hi hat, like yeah, the foot the going down. And then like the, the little bit of noise that, that yeah. you get when you release the hi hat. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's so it's the type of noise that normally you probably wouldn't want to hear, at least up front, you know, with Definitely won't hear that in track no. recordings. Oh, definitely. No, <laughs> like with the whole drum set going, not at all. But it's like such a distinctive sound. You do get that room, that natural like room reverb within the drums. Which speaking about the drums, like one thing that whenever I think of Zeppelin these days, I go back to college and I had an old... Uh, kind of ex-hippie professor, uh, shout out to Dr. Dave. Dr. Dave, Dr. what a Dave. name. Yeah, three PhDs. Um, he got the name funny enough. He worked in a factory while going to school. And by that point, I think he already had a PhD. So like, you know, all the other guys, you know, a bunch of blue collar. Factory. Yeah, in a factory, <laughs> like they refer to him as Dr. Dave, you know, right. almost as a, like a snide. Right. Like, but anyway, so Dr. Dave, I still remember from, one of his recording classes we had, he asked us, what would you say, and he was a huge Zeppelin fan, like, what would you say is the most important part of a Led Zeppelin recording? If you're thinking about the mix, the instrumentation, what's the most important part? Mm. What do you think it would be? That's a good question. I think a lot of people would definitely say the drums. Even more specifically. Oh, he's, well, bass. That bass drum, yeah. Yeah. That bass, it's all about that bass drum. When you, especially if you have a good system to listen through, it's like that bass drum is front and center and like the the foundation that everything else is kind of laid on top of, mm. I would say. And, you know, like back then, you know, as the guitar player student, I was like, oh, the Jimmy Page's guitars, right? Or Robert Plant's voice. He's like, no, it's all about the, if you can kind of picture like, you know, all about the bass drum, man. It's all about that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I still think of that today whenever I listen to a Zeppelin recording. Listen carefully to the, the kick drum. Yeah, it's uh, it's there. And a lot of it comes from that, that room sound too, I think. Well, and Bonham yeah. was kind of known for his unique rhythms. and His kind grooves, of, his, groove, his feel. His sense of timing, yeah. And he hit those drums too. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, <laughs> he was not a delicate drummer. <laughs> This delicate is not the word to describe John Bonham. And, you know, uh, one of my least favorite things as an engineer is when you're trying, whether it be a live show or, or a studio recording, when you're you're trying to get the song to have some power and some, some movement behind it and you have a drummer who's just barely tapping the drums 
It's like, man, hit the yeah. things. <laughs> That's where it starts. Hit the right? drum, buddy. Yeah. Whether recording in the studio or a live show, it kind of starts there. There's no there's no magic wand to turn your weak wristed uh you know, snare drum <laughs> hits into a John Bottom. You just you gotta play like you like you got something behind it. No joke. Give it some oomph. So as we go through this tune in that spacey section, for those who may not know, uh one of those cool kind of like from outer space sounds that comes through is coming from that theremin mm-hmm. and you mentioned that before what is what is a theremin man hell know? if i know i just know it has a it's a box with an antenna it's, it's like some magical like. some probably like evil possessed machine that just makes cool sounds i think i think <laughs> it i think it creates some sort of it will obviously create some sort of feel around it whether that's like it's got to be magnetic right i assume so yeah and it catches your hand movements. I am. I am t- talking. I have no idea how this thing actually works. I am just guessing. But <laughs> all I know, I need to like uh, text back an old high school buddy uh, when I was I was in a funk band for a while in the early two thousands, and our bass player was an electrical engineering student, and so he got himself a theremin kit, and he built it, and he started bringing it out on the shows. And man, if that thing wasn't like, we had to like pull people away from. You know, waving their hands around it because, like, anytime any band member was not playing, they'd just head over to the theremin, which is sitting right on top of the bass uh, cab, and just start waving their hands oh, around. Yeah. And you know, Wee-oo! how could you resist? I mean, it's so it's so much fun. But for everyone else, you know, who's not using it, it can sound very tiresome and annoying quickly. <laughs> but we have that going on in that spacey section, and, and even on live shows, um, when impelled to uh if i'm not mistaken like jimmy page would head over there and like make some theremin noises with that <laughs> while john bottom's going off on his uh percussion and drums and everything have you found anything on the theremin yes i have but i'm not quite ready i'm not quite it's an ready interesting to share contraption. yet <laughs> i do know there's i mean there are classical musicians who play the theremin. That's insane. Yeah. Like, could you... Could pieces you, written for it. There are p- classical pieces written for the yeah. the theremin. I mean, I suppose there's a classical piece written for just about any instrument, if you look hard enough. But of course, like, the theremin's probably most known for, especially, you know, if this song came out in 1969, you would have already had the Beach Boys' Good Vibrations, and the mm. theremin is on that record. That has that distinctive hook in there almost like that whistle kind of whistle tone sort of a thing going on in that tune that's the most famous like recording of a theremin in like pop music i can think of they're cool instruments but it's it's hard to you know sit down with a theremin and write a really concise musical bit yes yes (laughs) easy to sit down next one and wave your hands around and be entertained for hours on end Hard to come out with anything, you know, productive or Although I should get one. Satisfied. I'm sure my, my wife would love the oh, theremin to I the bet collection your dog would love it. Yeah, fact, you know what? No, my dog probably would. I bet your dog would absolutely hate it. My dog <laughs> hates the harmonica. She'll just whine anytime I try to play the harmonica. Maybe so. she's singing with you. Perhaps, perhaps. Singing by going... Yeah. <laughs> Maybe she loves it. Yeah. It's like, this is hurting my damn ears. So we get out of that spacey section. Eventually it kind of builds to a crescendo, almost like a tribal crescendo in a sense. Like it's very tribal-esque. And breaks down to that guitar solo. Has some like classic like E blues licks in there from the from Page himself with some great bins. And then we, you know, get through the rest of the tune. I think there's the other verse, chorus. And then the interesting thing about this, and this is when we get back into the Willie Dixon and the Small Faces recording. Another distinctive part of this tune is towards the end when they break down and uh, Robert Plant has this little like vocal break. Like, woman. Yeah. What's interesting about that is if you go back to the, the Small Faces record, they do the same thing. Their singer, Steve Marriott, who has an awesome voice, many people from what I've kind of read and seen, like, almost would describe him as the Robert Plant who isn't Robert Plant in a mm. way. Like if perhaps if Robert Plant hadn't become famous with Led Zeppelin, Steve Marriott might have 
maybe in garnered a that parallel attention. universe. Exactly, because he definitely has a voice, and it's at first glance you would think it was Robert Plant singing. Wow. Uh, so the, Zepp's tune does the same break as the Small Faces did, and that's when you really start to get into the form-wise and kind of thematic-wise similarities with the Small Faces recording of You Need Lovin', which goes back to the Willie Dixon tune recorded by Muddy Waters. So another distinctive thing with this tune is, let me grab a slide here. I found an old, uh, it's like a ceramic moonshine slide I never use, but it was the only slide I could find, is in the chorus when they're going with the whole lot of love background vocals. That little slide glissando. Very cool thing. I think it's kind of neat. It kind of just adds that distinctive uh, touch that if you didn't have it, you'd kind of feel like it's missing. You you don't necessarily think think about it too much when you're listening to the song, but the second you mute it and take it out of the song, you're like, oh, put that back, put that back. Yeah, it's cool because it's kind of distinctive, but there's really nothing like pitch-wise specific about it. I mean, if you're picturing like a... E bar chord at the seventh fret, and where your ring finger would normally be barring at the ninth fret, you have your slide there, and that's where you're starting that slide. That was a bad one. Like I said, I don't use this slide at all. It's super heavy. I feel this thing. Well, it's not heavy, heavy, but it's just super thick. So, only slide slide I could find. Yeah, but I think it's kind of cool that. They still have a slide on here because if you go back to the Muddy Waters on that record, there's slide guitar on it, kind of doing more distinctive like slide blues stuff. And so it kind of just, it's almost like a signifying to that song back then with the tradition of slide blues. It's just, you know, uh, Jimmy Page isn't really doing the classic. Those sort of like sly licks. He's just literally going... Slide. So it's, it's like it's like you you bought a slide and you just want to use it. For yeah, you just, you just want the sound of it, yeah. similar to like with the theremin. You're just kind of getting the sound of that theremin. There's you know that breakdown section. There's no specific notes attached to the theremin. It doesn't it doesn't take old. Derek Trucks to to play the slide riff in a whole lot of love. Yeah, you would not hire Derek Trucks to do that slide part. Um, but then what's funny, and I think it's probably just because it's kind of inconvenient to have a slide on your finger while you're playing the rest of this tune, is like on live records, not often would you see Jimmy Page doing that slide part, you know, they just go. They they had to to change their arrangements. Maybe not their arrangements so much, but they they definitely had to pick and choose kind of the guitar parts they would emphasize in their live shows. Yeah, definitely. Especially once it's gotten into more overdubbed and layered stuff. Oh, yeah. There'll be four or five guitars on some tunes. But this one, as we say, kind of pretty pretty simple. Um, I think we're, you're thinking that back then, this was probably recorded on a, uh, what are you saying, 8 or 16 track, you think, back oh. then. Because there's really not a lot of tracks. You think maybe a couple, maybe four, five tops drum mics. You have the main guitar riff, main uh, guitar track, which could have two uh, mics on the cab, perhaps. A lot, you have well, the vocals, I guess I can't bass. speak uh, for, for the engine who recorded it, but... If it was me, I would for sure try to have at least two mics on the cab. Probably one one condenser mic and probably one yeah. uh, dynamic mic. And if you have another one for the overdubbed uh, slide part. So there's really not many like distinctive tracks going on. Like it's you know bare bones rock and roll. Bass, guitar, vocals, and your drums. Yeah, I think it's likely they were probably on 16 track. I believe I believe the 16 tracks was or the multi track was expanded to 16 tracks I think in maybe 68 a year yeah. before they started their recording. So they probably wanted to to make use of of all 16 if I had to guess. I know multi tracking 
as like a technique was developed in the 50s like 55 or so mm-hmm. so and then they at first they had i think maybe just two tracks just a stereo track yeah two, and then and then they got got the four tracks a lot of beatles recordings are done on four track that's why the, all the drums are on the left because they which is great yeah they just mic it with two drums and hard and left drums hard right vocals and guitar yep and then because the, you know they had so many harmonies and stuff to do they would they would bounce them down to one of the four tracks they had available anyway so yeah that's probably 16 tracks but that's that's not a lot of tracks i mean if you were to record the same type of song today it's that's probably a, like a 40 some track song you know oh definitely with all yeah, the guitars a lot and of the spacey sections and you'd probably yeah. go nuts on i mean you could probably have 16 mics just on the drums oh for these sure days. yeah if you have three toms you maybe do uh mono overhead you know stereo overheads of course and then you could you could do some fun things you probably do like yeah. a room crush a, a, like a far near um type of thing yeah you have like a mic behind the drummer like sometimes some gets his yeah, perspective sure. or you know let's say it his or hers perspective. Yeah. I know some engineers. They've even they've even done like silly things. They'll call it like the butt mic, and they'll just be like a mic <laughs> underneath the <laughs> nice. drum set, and they'll just like you know mess it up with compressors <laughs> and EQs and stuff. You know, they just they just do silly things. That's a fun thing about recording that style of music is you can kind of get creative and just have fun with your your recording of it, which they certainly did back then. Yeah, but like you know, back then there's kind of this uh, necessity is the mother of invention like when you know you only have so much room on the tape right and you have your song and it's like do we really how much need that, that one more vocal take or, or yeah, are we exactly. fine with what we have yeah true yeah because outside of the whole lot of love during the courses there's really no like harmonized vocal parts mm. like going on in the verses or anything like that there's not many stacked vocals you just have that kind of background chant whole lot yeah. of love yeah there's definitely something to be said about the ability to make a decision and then continue from there. <laughs> Decide and go on. Yeah, yeah. The one of the I think one of the worst things you can do to yourself as a creative person is to torture yourself with endless amounts of decision making. If you can just make a decision and then live with it and move on and focus on other things. Uh, I think nine times out of 10, your product is better and you're also just happier <laughs> because yeah, like even when I'm just mixing a tune and I, I have to do some EQ work or something, I click my EQ list and I have 55 different EQs that come up. And it's like, do I really need 55 different you, EQs? You mean you don't go through... All 55 individually? I do not audition every EQ. Sometimes, I guess, if it's like a very, very specific thing I'm looking for, I might might audition two or three that I think will work best. But outside of that, it's like... And the the sad part is I probably only, out of those 50 EQs I own, I probably only use like 10, maybe even less than that. Like, I just have my favorites now. Yeah, and that's... We all kind of find our favorites and usually stick with them. Like for probably 90% of everything. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It really allows you to focus on the task at hand, whether you be mixing or whether you be creating, you know, writing a song and and stacking vocals or, you know, anything. Just the idea of making decisions and and moving on is is definitely something to uh, get good with. John is just dropping it. I dropped my guitar pick. Could you pick that up, please? There it is. It's right there. What we have here, we have a green Dunlap pick, 0.86 millimeters. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, I like it. It's thick enough for today, or a thicker pick rather. Yeah, I usually go with the slightly smaller than your teardrop size. You know, I I used to use the uh, the orange Dunlap ones. I think it's a, it's a, it's it's like a shade thinner than that. Oh yeah, yeah. But I realized I was wrong, (laughs) and thicker picks are better. I was a bad guitar player today and did not bring a pick with me. At all. Usually I have like three in my pocket, but not today though. Well, you have a ashtray of the guitar ashtray picks full, here, full which is pretty picks. awesome. That's right. Got to be prepared. Yeah, they're uh, 0.6, so that's only eight millimeters more than the old nice. ones I used to use. <laughs> Everyone definitely cares about the guitar picks we use. Oh yeah, no, not at all. This is great podcasting right now. <laughs> So here we go. I'm going to lay out a theory for this song, at least from the guitar perspective. So here's my theory. Is I think in some way subconsciously 
Jimmy Page was influenced by Hendrix's version of Hey Joe. Oh. Because that came out in 67, if I'm not mistaken. Um, no, 66. 1966 is when Are You Experienced came out by Hendrix. And in his version of Hey Joe, which again was a cover of an older tune, you're going through the chords. That same little like five note riff occurs every single time mm. during the verses of Hey Joe. And then all you have to do is kind of like turn up the gain on that. And you go on to, to that more like 16th note driven, just pure driving rock and roll. And he got a whole lot of love. So I think in some way, that's my theory at least. I don't mm. know if there's any evidence to it that he was partially influenced by that tune of Hendrix because people got to remember like when Hendrix came out when he really hit the scene like it was like earth shattering especially for guitar players they were just like what the hell is going on this like alien from outer space has come down and he's like playing the guitar better than any of us have could or ever wanted to so and you know especially with are you in experience that album like any guitar player in the world would have already known it. So I feel like that might have been a partial influence on him. Mm. And then the other fun thing is on the like the Muddy Waters recording and seeing with the small faces, they had a similar like riff going on. It was just different notes, but it kind of had a similar like rhythm to it. You know, in the um, those recordings, they're more of a shuffle blues. You know, that happens every once in a while. Oh, I see. Yeah. You know, not the same notes, but kind of the musically kind of a similar motif, you know, you could say. So between those two things, I think that's kind of where, you know, in the back of Paige's mind, this riff may have emerged. Um... And you're mentioning to me, like, what's that one word? Uh, uh, crypto. Yes. Uh, man, manesia? Yes. Crypto. Hang on, I'm crypto something. In my notes, I had put the crypto word. The crypto word. I Whatever believe that's that crypto manesia. When you subconsciously come up with an idea that you've really have heard before in the past or perhaps read about or saw. And so when you come up with it, you think it's your own original idea, even though you've already had like a come across before yeah cryptomagnesia is the word nice. and the definition is cryptomagnesia occurs when forgotten memory returns without being recognized as such by the subject who believes it is something new and original so you basically if you take it out of music if you uh if you saw the movie star wars right <laughs> or maybe that's too too popular of an example let's see but is let's it? see you saw a movie like star wars like uh, i believe there is one that's super yeah, <laughs> that is super popular. Um, and then you forgot, you, 10 years go, goes by and Star Wars hasn't become the huge franchise that it is. And then you have an idea for a movie. Mm-hmm. And it's basically Star Wars, but you forgot you saw Star Wars. Yes. Doesn't mean you can't, doesn't mean you cannot be sued because you're still taking their intellectual property. Yeah. But it's not necessarily malicious. That's the thing. A lot of people think when people get into copyright uh, trouble, it's it's a malicious thing that yeah. they're, they're trying to steal something. And a lot of times that's just not the case. Yeah, many, many times not. It's unconscious or you don't realize, you know, that you took it yeah. verbatim well, and, or, and, or And when these guys with... are recording in between shows, I mean, they're probably doing a few shows a week, going heading to the studio on their off days, you know, in London, New York, L.A., all over mm-hmm. the place. And, the, you know, they're they're probably kind of feeling the pressure to kind of get stuff down and, you know, Oh, I have an idea. And then they, they run, they roll with it. They run with it. Yeah. You know, and it, it's very easy to see how. And that can... seems to be the case with this too. And like from uh, interviews with a uh, plant page, he said that, you know, we have this riff and plant starts singing over it. And, you know, he's starting to like, in a sense, regurgitate those lyrics from uh, the Willie Dixon tune. And they just went with it. Um, the interesting thing with, you know, Zeppelin, though, is 
they are well known for, they have many other songs in which these days they're at least co-credited by other musicians and like especially blues artists you know you look at dazed and confused have had trouble with that babe i'm gonna leave you it was just two examples that come to mind but so it's not the sole time that zeppelin had a tune that they kind of at that time inadvertently uh, referenced another tune without giving credit to it sure but they eventually did in the late 80s i think 1987 they came to a lawsuit uh settlement with Willie Dixon and his estate over this tune. So now, whenever you see it in print anywhere, the writing credits include Willie Dixon on this tune. So he did get credit then. Yes, yes. Quite a bit of monetary gain. I would imagine so. (laughs) And you can see why. So let's, uh, I'm going to read to you some of the lyrics from Willie Dixon's You Need Love. You Need Love. So here we go. You've got yearning and i got burning baby looks so oh sweet and cunning babe way down inside woman you need love woman you need love you gotta have some love sounds a little familiar yes yeah so a whole lot of love here we go rhythmically and like uh, the rhythm of the words you're going to get the sense not quite the same at first you need cooling baby i'm not fooling i'm going to send you back to schooling Way down inside, a honey, you need it. I'm going to give you my love. I'm going to give you my love. So right there, we've, we've already kind of made the similarities. And the yearning part comes back, like second verse. You've been yearning, um, babe, I've been learning. All them good times, baby, I've been year yearning. <laughs> kind of a weird thing. Kind of a tongue twister, huh? But yeah, I know. Way down inside, you need it. You need my love. You need my love. I mean, they're not asking would you like some of my love? Mm-mm. Well, that's kind of an interesting Yeah, it's just like, no, you, you need my love. You know? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, back then. A little a different perspective, <laughs> especially within uh, blues music. There's a lot of that. So it's kind of obvious when you look at the lyrics that... And even if they had changed the lyrics even a little bit more, I feel like it's pretty substantially significant, which is kind of the legal yeah, and that's thing pr- they look at. If there's a way that if the lyrics were completely different, Musically, it was the same. And rhythmic, it'd be fine. And, and it'd well, be fine. Well, I think actually, so. it might not be though, because that it would it would actually come down to a jury. As as shocking as that is, and a lot of times these people have no musical background at all. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> just look at the recent uh, the Katy Perry uh, settlement that occurred. But um, I don't know. Do you think like if the lyrics were like completely different, the words like? See, I think. If and there have, wasn't, there was no "you need love." There was none of that. But if they took the melody and they took the rhythmic scheme of of yeah. the other song, I think there's a case there. Might still, especially might still be the there. melody. I think you yeah. can get away with maybe stealing the rhythm of something because that's a lot harder to prove. Yes, true. The melody is really that would be really be the thing you focus on. Yeah, and then the lyrics, because I mean it's pretty easy to change lyrics, right? And sure. Then, and then as the a non lyricist, I would agree to that. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I would be uh, a little reluctant to use someone's melody and, and rhythm and change your lyrics and think that I would be fine. Yeah, it's Which you might not do it on purpose, territory. right? It's true. You might, might just... Per- <laughs> little cryptomanesia creeping in. Yes, the word of the day. Maybe that's what we should call, call our podcast. The cr- cryptomanesia coffee and consoles? <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> So what else do you want to talk about this song from like a recording perspective or well, sound perspective? I've kind of been, this being our first episode, I've kind of been mulling it over. And some of the things you should listen to are definitely the, the use of the stereo field, especially in the spacey parts, how they do the, all the panning and yeah and rides, because all that would have been done by hand. Yeah, talk about that for a second, because that well, sounds kind of fun. Yeah, it was like, it was fun. I've done some projects where I have mixed on a, a large format console, and then at the end, you do what's called a bounce. And basically what that is, you record... Bounce to tape. Yeah, so you take your... Let's assume they recorded on 16 tracks. You take your 16 tracks, and then you're, you're making a left-right master you know, stereo mix. And that'll, mm-hmm. that'll be 
printed it's called printed um onto another tape which will then be sent to the mastering house and they'll get it ready and they'll do things like making sure the bass isn't too loud so the needle doesn't jump out of the groove you know on the vinyl and stuff like that making sure it's a, a loud enough volume as the years got on they started doing more and more like noise reduction and those sorts of things but for the bounce down before you get to the mastering house what you would do is you would have all your board labeled with all your takes and, and things. And there wasn't a lot of automation in the 60s. They were they were kind of developing it, but it wasn't quite there yet. And so what you had to do, if you wanted, if the guitar was recorded on one track and he did a live solo, mm-hmm. which he probably didn't, but let's just, let's, let's pretend he did. Yeah, I don't know if that was... Recorded. Knowing guitar players, I just yeah. assume he didn't. And he probably yeah, there's, I think there's it was probably, probably like 12 other guitar solos that we never heard. Um, <laughs> Although, funny enough, he kind of plays his, at least phrasing wise, a similar solo on the live shows a lot. He'll oh, yeah. Like well, when you, when you have a banger like that, yeah. I mean, how, you can't you really, the guitar the parts almost become as recognizable yeah. and important as, as the lyrical content in the, in the melody so you have your song and you're getting ready to your bounce down you you hit record and your, your tapes are going and then you play the song and so what you have to do is you actually have to make all your fader moves so if you want any volume adjustment on say the guitar solo when the guitar solo comes in you have to move that fader up in the moment in the moment as it happens it's like a live mix it's like yeah. you're mixing the song live it's it the mix of the song becomes a, a performance in and of itself yeah, which is really fun. These days, it's all done with automation, so it's a lot more precise. But automation's taken all of our jobs. Yeah, well, I, I mean, <laughs> it's it, started in the music industry. Yeah, started, decades ago. Started started in the seventies, folks. Consoles were then built with motorized faders and stuff, and you have all these different uh, types of automation, uh, which are like flying faders and automation uh, are two different types, and they're a nightmare to use. Trust, just almost, trust me on this. I'm almost picturing like a old school player piano like that's a, like, that's kind like of a player piano yeah, no. version of a recording console with when the, you when you record i've seen the, it happen before yeah, too with record the, the fader and then the fader will move on its own but yeah. they didn't have that so if there was like any dirt in the console or, or anything else like that a lot of times you get like a scratchiness or yeah. a pop and so like you had to make sure all the all the channels were clean and a lot of times as you got further towards the end of the console that's where all the dead channels were right so like they would what they would do is they would remove a channel stick it on you know the end of the console and put put the fresh one in oh nice in a pinch to try to keep everything clean yeah especially if you don't use those as much exactly now when i was in school it was the other way around the cleanest channels were the channels at the end of the console because no one ever used them and the the ones that never worked were like channels one through eight of course (laughs) so they, they had to perform this mix and that's really cool. When you listen to the song and, and you listen to the stereo panning and, and then you realize that there's someone like turning the knob, you know, to the left and the right. And they're riding in those vocal Yeah, there's fades as well, too. So all that had to be done. And a lot of times you didn't have enough hands to do the moves that you needed to do. So you would recruit people around the studio, the musicians, yeah, you know, I was gonna someone say, walking by. Probably the band members. <laughs> oh, yeah. A lot of times. The band. And so every, every time you would do a pass you would try to get the same performance and there's little tricks to try and get like the same rides like you can put a little piece of tape where how loud you want it to be and so you have like a a range but it would still be just a little bit different in the swell and the timing yeah. the, the envelope of the attack what have you the classic technique of a little piece of tape yeah <laughs> honestly most of the time those those old consoles like the buttons they don't latch anymore like they lose their ability to latch you have to get like a little piece of wood or like a toothpick or something and you shove it in, you know, the, to wedge the button down oh, to keep yeah. it. So, so you look That's at these funny. old consoles, and, and so it's just like tape and like little toothpicks sticking up everywhere. These days, I, like I would use like my credit card or whatever if I ran into <laughs> that because sometimes it's like a pivotal button that you need to work, like a sender or something like that. But yeah, the performance of the mix is real is really quite good on on these, and and I believe it was mixed by a man named Eddie Kramer, and I okay. believe he also did Hendrix. Okay. I believe he did oh, Hendrix cool. as well. So that's kind of interesting. I wonder I wonder if if they went to Kramer because he liked Hendrix. That could be, yeah. Could, that could very well be. But it could that that's also just conjecture. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's not fact. I haven't read that anywhere. We both heard that. Yeah, we that's that's fact. That to me is probably the most interesting part of the recording process on this song. There's three stages of recording, right? 
Mm-hmm. Generally, you have your tracking, which is you're right. All right, yeah. With uh, Eddie Kramer. Yeah. So you have you have your tracking, which is the band is coming to the studio. They're gonna lay down their ideas. They're they're kind of like the basic tracks. You're gonna do stuff like drums, bass, guitars, probably, and maybe you do like a scratch vocal track just so the band stays on time and kind of everything kind of vibes well and make yeah, sure yeah keep that, track of wh- where there are right. in the song the song form and along with tracking is kind of a subsection of that where you have overdubs maybe you do your vocal takes you add all the sweeteners mm-hmm. you do your guitar fills, solo guitar solos extra add your organ tracks. that you're probably going to mute later you know all that percussion, percussion which is in here the hand drums yep and then you have your mixing which is the second stage that's what we were just speaking about it's kind of I had a teacher explain it to me once, and he said, we hide the dead bodies <laughs> as, a, as a mix engineer. It's very dark. It's very dark. It's probably because they don't spend a lot of time with mix engineers. We don't spend a lot of time with people. Yeah, some of them are not the most social We just We just characters. dwell in our, yeah. <laughs> in our mix studios. But you, you, you do things. You, look, you try to make... In fact, Kevin, what's that, what's that I'm hearing in your closet? Yeah. I feel no, like nothing, someone's banging no, on the... Don't worry about it. it. I, <laughs> I have to Oh my go. God, it's a dead body. <laughs> you took that literally. You, you do things like you, you shape the, the sonic spectrum. You know, you kind of make sure the, the low end of the guitar doesn't uh, conflict with the high end of the bass or the low end of the bass doesn't conflict with the low end of the kick drum. Yeah. Do, do sort of things like that. Or the mid-range of the guitar doesn't, doesn't cover up the vocals. Vocals. Make sure the correct parts of the song are emphasized and kind of there's a whole process of doing that. But that's kind of your basic goal. What I tell people when I mix a song is I just want to make your song the best version of your song. I'm not yeah. out, I'm not out there to like because there's some guys who like to you know try to like radically change the sound of everything because I do crazy mixes. I know how like, to make this yeah. sound better, John. Oh sure, yeah. But, almost like do a remix of it. Oh like, yeah, it's almost like yeah. You before just, like, the like, original, that doesn't sound like my voice yeah. and that doesn't sound like my guitar. And that's I mean that's an easy trap to fall into when you're learning. Yeah, because you want to put your own people like to put their own personal touch. Well, on you things. want to impress yeah. your client. You know, that, you want you want people to think that you really know what you're doing. But then you get old and and jaded, and you don't care anymore. You just make the the best of what you got. <laughs> How true, my friend. Yeah, I'm not even old. You're not even old. I'm but the old one. Mixing. So yeah, you hide so the dead then, bodies. Yeah, hide the dead bodies. We hit them, and then and then you move on to the mastering phase, which back then was a lot more technical than it was creative. Mixing yeah. is more of a creative. It's art in and of itself, not just like the fader moves and stuff, but like how you choose to to scope out certain little holes for, for things to live in or how you choose not to do that. Mm-hmm. I find that stuff infinitely interesting. Perhaps we'll... We'll do a deep dive on, on mixing techniques and whatnot. Yeah, we'll definitely have to that, find that's, some good songs with uh, interesting mixes, perhaps. You know what's funny is a lot of times when you listen to a, like a song and, and you, you're like, "Wow, this is this is so so great," and then and like a lot of times it's like a really popular song. And you're like, "This mix is so good." A lot of times, if you look up that mix engineer and then you look up his other work, a lot of times you find mixes that are way better than the mix you thought was so good. Oh yeah, you know, like what he did with. Other artists or other yeah, bands, exactly. Like, uh, lesser known because there's a lot of politics when sure. it, when it oh, comes yeah. to mixing. Like, and sometimes you're not even privy to them. Like, sometimes the bass player is just always going to hate your mix because you don't know that during tracking they wouldn't let his girlfriend sing background vocals on the song. So now he just hates the song and doesn't want it to be released. Like, there's like all <laughs> sorts of just. That's a very specific example. That's never <laughs> happened to me. That's never happened to me. But you know, I've heard stories from my friends having similar kind of situations arise or like things become really interesting when one person in the band makes more money than everyone else. Yes. You know, um, cause they probably married a lawyer, right? Someone with Benny's. Yeah. Or a doctor. Let's talk about benefits. Yeah. Um, so, so there, there are some, some political things that come along with mixing yeah. that as a guitar player, we never feel like the guitars are loud enough. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, funny enough, if you listen back to the, uh, the early Metallica records, You'll notice that the guitars and drums are obscenely loud compared yeah, to like the bass. You can't hear any bass. That's because that's because it, it was uh, 
it was Hetfield and who's the drummer? Lars. And oh yeah, Lars. Um, it was the, they mixed the, their records. Themselves. Oh sure. So they, they just cranked their their own instruments. Yeah, just lows and highs, Classic. no mids on those guitars. No, yeah. no, we don't need. In fact, when I like, because I grew up listening to Metallica, like as a teenager, I grew into listening to Metallica. You, oh yes, <laughs> and it was like it took me. At one point, I think in high school, I realized that they actually did have a bass player. Like, like and oh, there, there was guy? bass. I'm like, I've never even thought of the bass guitar in Metallica. So it was an eye-opening experience. And then I realized, well, the bass isn't really doing much of anything. Yeah, he's, outside he's of just, just kind of holding it down. Yeah, he's do, he's doing what he what he needs to do. The mix and the and the recording process of a whole lot of love is kind of like your typical 60s not a ton of mics not a ton of tracks really the sound of rock and roll is kind of a guitar plugged into a marshall plexi right yeah. and then insert great guitar player with great hands whether it be hendrix page you know mm-hmm. clapton yeah angus young my personal my personal favorite <laughs> personal favorite um, you know it's real they're all they're all playing they're all playing reasonably similar equipment you know marshall plexi with most of them use humbuckers i guess you could argue clapton used humbuckers in his early days and then switched to a strat yeah Hendrix, yeah he went course, around yeah, very from, famous mm-hmm. strat man mm-hmm. they all get radically different sounds and i guess i guess i say radically different and maybe to me it's radically different but maybe to my wife maybe it all sounds like maybe noise <laughs> maybe it all sounds like noise to her it kind of shows that like the recording process a lot of it just kind of had to do with like you don't get you had the same equipment in the same the same studios and stuff but if you don't have John Bonham, Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones and Robert Plant then you yeah. you probably don't have They're a the whole ones lot of love. pushing that air. It's all about pushing at, that air. At a certain point it's a physics problem. You just you have y amount of power and you have you have to push x amount of air. Yeah. So on future episodes we will definitely get into some recording techniques that are like way down in the weeds that no one really cares about but me yeah another fun idea could be yeah like crazy like novelty recording techniques like stuff that queen might have done with like you know swinging amplifiers from a string from the ceiling yeah well i know (laughs) i know uh, i know at some point to record a leslie which is a speaker that rotates Mm -hmm. it's very typical with like a b3 organ famous sound everyone knows the sound even if you don't know what a leslie is they tried to. It's kind of a tricky thing to record. Yeah, you need a couple microphones. You, you need typically people do three mics. You can get away with two mics, but they try spinning the mics with the Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> like I have no idea how they managed like the contraption to spin the mics around yeah. the cabinet as they were recording. That's a science project, right yeah. there. Yeah, I like. I imagine the wind you would create doing that yeah. would be also be a problem. But then you're like the. That's weird because that goes against what the idea of a leslie rotating speaker is yeah it's part of that whole thing like you hear it then it goes away and then it comes back to you what's that like called the the doppler effect when yeah. you hear like a it's car kind of, pass by you quickly yeah so you're kind of like going against that if yeah anyway that's neither here nor there it's neither here nor there <laughs> one of our mini tangents we'll probably get into this is the coffee part of the uh yes the coffee part because we're sipping some coffee which thank you by the way Ah, yes. You had uh, brewed some coffee earlier. Indeed, I roast my own beans. Kevin's freshly roasted beans. Yes. Known by many, consumed by few. Yeah, true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am one of them. I am a fan of your beans. (laughs) Mm. As you should be. So anything else about this song that we think? Not that I can think of. Um, I think think that's all that I can think of to talk about. To be to to set the record straight, we had originally done this podcast once before. Yes, it's kind and of deja vu all over again. We we had some issues, some technical issues. I take full responsibility as the engineer of the duo. <laughs> In my defense, the problem was an intermittent problem. <laughs> when I when I checked it initially, everything was great. So sure it was. So, sure it was. You know what? It's my fault. Everything's always everything's Just say it's always, your fault Yeah, it's my fault mm-hmm. We would love to have suggestions From you guys About about what, what songs you'd like us to talk about If We'll probably end up doing a bit more In-depth coverage yeah. of things in the future We just kind of wanted to get things rolling Get things started mm-hmm. To kind of see how we feel about, about Just doing the podcast Yeah, definitely And I think this was 
doing this song, Whole Lot of Love, was my suggestion. So maybe the next time you can pick a tune. Hmm. Maybe we might just go back and forth at first. Yeah, for sure. We're both kind of rockers at heart, so we'll probably do a lot of that stuff, and maybe I'll try to throw a curveball at you. I was going to say, maybe I'll throw a curveball at you. We'll we'll do some uh, Peruvian throat singing. Yes, I love Peruvian throat singing. I can't say that word, as I just proved. (laughs) I guess that's it for now. I think so. So, We had our coffee. We talked some consoles and then many other things yeah see i would i would like to talk about kind of like the recording consoles that they used on the record but the truth of the matter is since they recorded in so many different cities and studios i have no idea (laughs) it's probably it's probably three four five six different consoles because a lot of times they wouldn't have the same console in the studio so it could be mcis could be apis could be neve consoles could be even be a trident i don't know if those were around back in the 60s but yeah i don't know Definitely Neve was. Definitely yep. MCI was. It's probably either of them, too. Yeah. Both. I hear you. We have our console talk now. There we go. We had some coffee. Talk some consoles. So thank you, everyone, for listening. I've been John. I'm Kevin. Peace out. We'll see you later. Long days and pleasant nights. If you feel like getting in contact with us, feel free to send us an email at coffeeandconsoles at gmail.com. That's coffee, the word and, consoles, C-O-N-S-O-L-E-S, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks. Bye.